North Stonian Bible Church is having their annual Easter program at uh, two different nights this year, 6 p.m. on Saturday, April the 7th, and again on Sunday, April the 8th at the Wheeler High School Gymatorium. So we are invited, so I know some of you have been in the past and enjoyed that, so we'll continue to make an announcement of that. Al will make a note of it to put in the bulletin. 6 p.m. on April 7th and 6 p.m. on April 8th. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed, Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. All scriptures God breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. Before we begin our study this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship. A few moments of silent prayer in case you need to use 1 John 1, 9 and to give the stragglers an opportunity to slip in. And uh, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have the opportunity to worship you this evening. You are a God who has communicated to us clearly. It is only due to our human limitations that we are not always able to understand your word, or sometimes we don't want to hear it. But we pray that under the filling of the Holy Spirit, we would be responsive and that the Holy Spirit would make these things clear to us and that we would be able to assimilate them into our thinking, that we might be Uh, transformed and renewed by your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are on the edge of ending our study on dispensations. Probably won't finish tonight, but we will next week. We are in the last part, the prophetic arena, the future ages. We are now in the present church age. Those who die in the present church age will go to Hades. It is a place of torments and fiery torments, and it's a holding place until the second resurrection. We will get to that probably next time. Jesus Christ will, this age ends when Jesus Christ returns in the clouds at the rapture, and all believers, all church age believers, will be raptured to meet him in the air. I never turn around and look at the screen, but the colors in the PowerPoint are a little bit different from the ones up there. I'll look at that every now and then. The Sometime, probably shortly after the uh, rapture, there will be a transition period. We don't know how long. It could be as short as a few months. could be as long as a few years, I imagine. But the tribulation will begin when the Antichrist comes and signs a peace treaty with Israel. The tribulation lasts just short of seven years. During that time, believers are in heaven being evaluated for rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. There will be, we will be rewarded for uh, our works, that is, whether or not we were producing divine good under the filling of the Holy Spirit or human good uh, out of the sin nature, and for the gold, silver, and precious stones, that is the divine good, we will receive rewards. The church then returns with Jesus Christ. uh, While we are in the heavenlies, there's the marriage of the Lamb. And then Jesus Christ returns with the church as his bride at the second coming. That is when the battle of Armageddon is concluded, the campaign of Armageddon is concluded, and it is at that time that uh, the... Antichrist, the false prophet, are cast into uh, the lake of fire. It is at that time that all unbelievers who survive the tribulation are cast into Hades, and uh, there is the judgment of the tribulation believers. Then those who survive the tribulation go into 
the millennium. There will be a thousand-year period of the millennium. Now, we studied church age. We studied tribulation. And now we are at the last dispensation, the last dispensation known as the millennium, which concludes with the uh, Gog and Magog revolution, the great white throne judgment, and then the present heavens and earth are destroyed and the new heavens and new earth are created. So that is what we have left to cover. The millennium is indicated in Luke 1, 31-33 at the announcement by Gabriel concerning the birth of our Lord. There Gabriel tells Mary, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. So Jesus Christ will have a kingdom and he will literally reign as the greater son of David. Now that is an indication that even at the birth of Christ, there is still the anticipation that God will literally fulfill his promises, both in terms of the Davidic covenant to David and the house of David, the throne, the kingdom, the dynasty, and an eternal person on that throne. And that Israel will have a kingdom. The next indication of that kingdom comes in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. Revelation 21 through 6. It's often said that this is the only uh, passage that really supports a millennial kingdom. What we're going to see tonight is that it is but one of the few passages. I mean, it is just one small passage of many hundreds of passages that teach a millennial kingdom. But it is the only passage that teaches the time frame of the messianic kingdom. Revelation 20, verse 1, we read, this is just after the battle of Armageddon and the Armageddon campaign. I, that is John, saw an angel coming down from heaven having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. So Satan is going to be bound in the lake of fire for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and shut, shut it and sealed it over him so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part. Verse 6 goes on to read, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. And that is a reference to church-age believers who will rule and reign with Christ during the millennial kingdom. Now, historically, there's been debate over just what the thousand years refers to. And amillennialists, those who do not believe in a literal thousand-year reign of Christ, want to interpret the number as a representative number, as an idealistic number. There are a lot of different ways, but they avoid a literal interpretation. And it is important to understand why we take the thousand as literal. First of all, symbols in Revelation are all either defined in Revelation or they're defined somewhere else in Scripture. It's clear that there are symbols. We've talked about the beast. We've talked about the beast coming out of the sea. We've talked about uh, some of the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments. All of these are somewhat symbolic, but they are all defined in the context of Revelation. So we're not left to guess what God means. Furthermore, the term 1,000 is used six times in these verses from Revelation 20, verse 1, down through the end of, uh, down through verse 10. And in those 10 verses, the repetition of 1,000 emphasizes the fact that it should be taken and understood literally. Third, other numerical terms, such as the reference to 1,260 days, or as we'll see in Daniel 12, verse 3, 1,290 days, uh, 42 months, three and a half years, uh, 144,000. All of these numbers are to be taken literally. Therefore, there is no reason anywhere in the text 
or in the context to suggest that the 1,000 should be taken uh, any other way than literally. And then fourth, the basis for the belief in a millennial kingdom is in the Old Testament promises, prophecies, and covenants, not in Revelation 20 alone. Revelation 20 simply supplies the time frame, and the Old Testament passages all give us its characteristics, its reasons, and its purposes in God's plan. Now, we have to understand some things in terms of basic basic terminology. Premillennialism, good 50-cent word, premillennialism refers to the, the fact that the second coming of Christ, the second advent, which means Jesus Christ returns bodily to the earth, comes before, pre, comes before the millennium. The term millennium refers to a thousand years from the Latin word for a thousand, milli, M-I-L-L-E. So the millennium refers to a, this thousand year period and the second coming precedes that. At that time there is the first resurrection, the completion of the first resurrection, which comes in stages or ranks. The first fruits was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The second rank is the church age believers. The third rank are the uh, tribulation martyrs who are killed during the tribulation. And the fourth rank are Old Testament saints. Those are all uh, resurrected by the time of the second coming of Jesus Christ. The second resurrection is a resurrection to death to eternal judgment at the great white throne judgment, and second resurrection goes to the, what is called the second death. So the second coming preceding the millennial kingdom is called premillennialism. It is based on a literal interpretation of prophecy, a literal interpretation of the Old Testament promises, that just as God promised certain things to Israel in the Old Testament, that just as in many cases part of those promises involved or have already been fulfilled, that just as they were fulfilled literally, so too the uh, remainder of those prophecies will be fulfilled literally. Amillennialism is the view that the millennium is really an ideal or an idealistic term. It doesn't refer to a specific, literal, thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, but refers just to the It's just a synonym for the present stage of the kingdom of God. And so it is a spiritual kingdom that runs concurrently with the church age. So in the chart we see millennium and church age running together. And in amillennialism, which is typical of Lutheran theology, covenant theology, uh, Roman Catholic theology, uh, nearly all, not all, but nearly all, Replacement theological systems, and I remind you, by replacement theology, I mean those systems that see see the church as replacing Israel in God's plan uh, for history, in God's plan of the dispensation. We would say that scriptures teach that, that Israel is put on hold because of their rejection of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And there is a parenthetical period, an intercalation is another term that is used, of the church age. It was unannounced in the Old Testament. It was not foreseen in the Old Testament. It was a mystery to the Old Testament. That means it was unrevealed truth. And as a mystery, no one knew about it. No one anticipated it. Not even the disciples anticipated it. What was their last question to Jesus before Jesus ascended to heaven in Acts 1.5? Is this the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They still didn't realize that the kingdom had been postponed. So in amillennialism and in all of these uh, replacement systems, there's no future for Israel because the church fulfills those Old Testament promises spiritually, not literally. So in in an amillennial system, the church age will end with the second coming. They merge all rapture passages and second coming passages. All the resurrections and all the judgments take place at that point, and then the earth is present, heavens and earth are destroyed, and you enter into the eternal state. That's amillennialism. Ah is a, in Latin, I mean, in, in a Greek, the a prefix is like a un prefix in English. It means none or, or no. 
So amillennialism means no millennium. And then the third term is postmillennialism. Postmillennialism and post indicates Christ comes after the millennium. So the church age is going to be a time of continual process. There'll be ups and downs. They would admit that, but eventually they would say to give them to be honest and representing their position. The Holy Spirit is going to uh, gradually bring more and more people to salvation until the majority of people on the earth are saved, and then the the governments will reflect that, and so you will gradually bring in a utopic uh, era of the millennium, but Jesus is not ruling and reigning on the throne in Jerusalem. He does not come back until the end of that millennium. One of the problems with post-millennialism, aside from the fact that it's not taught in Scripture, is that it it tends to promote a Christian activism. And even many activists who are premillennial don't realize that they are acting uh, in a post-millennial manner. And that's what's happened over the last 20 years. It's interesting, 25 years ago when I started seminary, we were told that post-millennialism was dead. We were told that there, and there was only one or two people to my knowledge uh, at that time that were really post-millennial. But there has been a tremendous resurgence of this sort of optimism uh, in the last 20 years so that it is really sweeping uh, evangelicalism. Some of you may be aware of a, of a man by the name of R.C. Sproul who's a covenant theologian and, and conference speaker and is very popular, has radio programs. Now, since we live in such a blacked out area here and we don't get any kind of Christian radio or Christian television, we're fortunate. And so some of you are probably ignorant of R.C. Sproul. But I bet I get at least one call a month from somebody asking me something about Sproul. He's very popular and he has become a preterist. Preterism is a term for those who believe that all of the prophecies in Matthew 24 and in Revelation were fulfilled in the past. When you hear the word preterism, just think past. And that all these things were fulfilled in the past. Revelation was written before A.D. 70. That all the signs and symbols are simply a secret code from John to believers about the, uh, uh, about the Roman Empire and its eventual destruction and about the destruction of Jerusalem. It's not substantiated in my thinking by any scholarship whatsoever but it has become uh, very popular in the last uh, ten years or so. And we need to just be aware that that's out there so you don't get confused by that. But those are the three basic systems for interpreting the millennium. We reject both amillennialism and postmillennialism because they are built on a spiritualizing or allegorizing uh, interpretation of Scripture. So what is the foundation then for the millennium? Foundation, well, just in terms of a chart, we see here that the second coming of Christ must precede the thousand-year kingdom because the kingdom is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament promises and prophecies related to Israel's glory. And so we have to see how that takes place. Let's remind ourselves of the covenants. There were the three Gentile covenants, the creation or Edenic covenant in Genesis 1, 27 to 28, which ended with the fall. That was modified and stated as the Adamic covenant in Genesis 3, 15, or 14 through 19. That ended with the flood. And then God modified that covenant again, reinstated it after the flood as the Noahic covenant, which is still in effect. Certain provisions of the uh, Noahic Covenant are not popular today. I wonder if there's a connection. Such as uh, eating meat. You know, there's such a rise in vegetarianism, and it always seems like the Eastern, mystical, New Age, shamanistic, uh, Native American religious systems all have some sort of problem with eating meat. And it's interesting that the same sort of people who tend to be attracted to that sort of thing are also the same kind of people that reject capital punishment. But the Noahic Covenant establishes 
both capital punishment and the eating of meat, not just beef, I'm talking about any animal flesh, fish, chicken, pork, or beef, established the eating of meat as necessary for the survival of the human race. And the uh, third promise in the covenant, you might say, is that God would not destroy the planet again by water. And as a sign that all of those things were in effect, God put his rainbow in heaven. So whenever you think uh, you see a rainbow, you ought to think about eating a good steak, a prime rib. And then secondly, you ought to think about having execution of all capital criminals and that that execution should be hasty and not built on some sort of 10-year period of continuous appeals. So the rainbow ought to remind us then that capital punishment is still in effect, meat-eating is still in effect, and that God is not going to destroy the present earth by water. Then after that, God began to work after the Tower of Babel with a particular individual and his descendants, the Jews. It began with the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and we studied all the various passages on that when we went through this. And that there were three provisions in the Abrahamic covenant, provision for land, seed, and blessing. Each of those paragraphs, the land, co- the land paragraph was expanded in the real estate or land promise in Deuteronomy 29 and 30. The, de- the seed promise is expanded and the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, and the blessing provision is expanded in the new covenant of Jeremiah 31. That's what we're going to focus on this evening, is how these covenants are finally brought to completion and fulfillment in the millennial kingdom, that they have never been fulfilled in history. Aspects of them, perhaps, um, in terms of the Abrahamic covenant, because we can see how at times Israel was blessed or cursed, Uh, But generally speaking, these have not been uh, actually fulfilled. Now, that's an interesting thing. I haven't talked much about this, but there's a big discussion about whether or not a passage can be fulfilled more than once. A passage or a prophecy can only be fulfilled once. There's no such thing as double fulfillment or partial fulfillment. In fact, uh, partial fulfillment is sort of like being a little bit dead or a little bit pregnant. Fulfillment means every single detail, 100%, has been uh, actuated in human history. And these covenants have never been truly activated in history. Now, you look at the blessing and cursing and see that when some people have blessed Israel, they've been blessed, and when they've been hostile to Israel or anti-Semitic, they've been cursed. But uh, the covenant as a whole has not been fulfilled. The Abrahamic covenant... Or let's just get an, before we get into that, I want to stop and do an overview of the millennial kingdom. Just let's take it very simply, have an overview of the messianic kingdom as we've done with other dispensations in seven points. First of all, the chief person. The chief person in the messianic kingdom is Jesus Christ, who is the greater son of David and is the ruler of Israel from the throne of David in Jerusalem. So first point, the chief person is Jesus Christ, is the greater son of David. Second point, the millennial kingdom emphasizes Jesus' reign as king in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. It emphasizes Jesus' reign as king in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. In the Davidic covenant, God promised David that he would have an eternal uh, son, an eternal throne, an eternal kingdom, and an eternal dynasty. And this has never been fulfilled and is only going to be activated in history at the second coming. Jesus Christ is not now on the throne of David. That's another one of those new little aberrations that we get, is this new uh, aberration and distortion of dispensationalism, which is called wrongly progressive dispensationalism. That's the term they like. But the reason I don't like that, you know, the battlefield is terminology. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. I emphasize that a lot. Words are important. And if you ever notice, there's a big debate in the whole abortion uh, debate between those who who believe in the right to life and those who believe in choice. See, those are positive words. Then there's those who are anti-abortion and those who are anti-choice. See, wherever you stand on the issue, you you pick your term for how you're going to describe the debate. 
and the terms color the emphasis in the debate. Well, the progressives come along, and they're out of Dallas Seminary. That's where they started. Mostly Dallas guys are in this progressive movement. I like what Dr. Ryrie said about them. They're revisionists. But the problem I have is they shouldn't even be called dispensationalists at all, and we should not give credence to them because of the moves they make in their system. They are not dispensationalists. And one of the points that they try to make is that Jesus is currently reigning on the throne of David in heaven. Jesus is currently reigning on the throne of David in heaven. That spiritualizes the throne and spiritualizes the kingdom, and that's the exact kind of interpretive strategy that the amillennialists use. So what they're doing is they're basically trying to compromise and find some middle road, and most of these guys who originated this were either classmates or a year ahead of me in seminary. I had some of them for professors, and they basically got tired. You know, there's a lot of intellectual pride in seminaries, and when uh, there is an assault on you as some kind of a fundamentalist, there's some of these guys who are so consumed with academic arrogance that they just don't like the lack of respect they get in scholarly circles. So they bend over backwards trying to make their, their theology academically respectable to liberals and to others with whom they, they should disagree. And that motivates them to change their theology, and that's tragic. So the second point is that the kingdom emphasizes Jesus' reign is king, fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, and that will not be fulfilled till he is on a literal throne in Jerusalem. Third, the responsibility. The responsibility in the kingdom is to the king and his laws. That is the instantiation of kingdom law in the millennial kingdom. And Jesus Christ, as the Messiah, as the Savior, will be ruling and reigning in Jerusalem. And so those who are born during the, during the millennium have a responsibility, the same responsibility we have today. They either accept Jesus' death on the cross for their behalf or they reject it. So that's a responsibility is to the king and forth their test. The test of that dispensation, every dispensation has a test. Their test will be to accept Jesus as Messiah, to accept Jesus as their Savior. These who are, and, and what we will learn, and I'll find, we'll go through some passages again on this, is that every Jew, I don't know why, but every Jew in the millennial kingdom will trust Christ as Savior. I don't know why that will be different, but it is clear from numerous passages in the uh, Scriptures that no Jew joins the Gog and Magog revolution against Jesus at the end of the Millennial Kingdom. Only Gentiles are involved in that revolt. So the responsibilities to the king and his laws, and fourth, the test will be to accept Jesus as a Messiah. Fifth, the failure in that dispensation is that there will be a minority of Gentiles who will reject the free offer of the gospel And when Satan is released from captivity at the end of the millennium, he will lead a rebellion that will be instantaneously wiped out by God sending fire from heaven. That ends the Gog and Magog revolution, and that ends human history. The sixth point in terms of General introduction is that grace is the point related to grace displays that in all of God's covenant promises to Israel, all of God's covenant promises to Israel are fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. That is the demonstration of God's grace. Despite all their failures, despite all their rebellion, despite their their, uh, crucifying Jesus, Israel will ultimately see the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies and promises. It will be a time of unmatched prosperity for Israel and a time when Israel is finally set over all of the nations and every Gentile sees the Messiah, I mean, sees uh, Israel as superior. There will be no anti-Semitism in the Millennial Kingdom. And then finally, the judgment factor of this dispensation is that those who reject the gospel 
are judged and destroyed at the end in the Gog and Magog revolution. That's the overview of the kingdom. Now let's look at some specifics. First of all, in relation to the Abrahamic covenant, in Genesis 13:14, the Abrahamic covenant describes the, the um, land that God has promised to Abram. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. So Abram is told to look out on the whole horizon, 360 degrees around him, and all the land which you see I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. Verse 16, he says, God continues, And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. And then in verse 17, we learn that the extent of the land isn't to the to just Abraham's uh, visual ability, but he is to walk about the land throughout its length and breadth to, to describe its boundaries. So he's to walk throughout all of the land that God's promised him, and God promises to give it to him. So what we see in this, these four verses is first that this promise included not only the land that Abraham could see, but also the land he could not see that was beyond his visual horizon. Secondly, the land was to be possessed by Abram. Notice in verse 15, For all the land which you see, not some of it, all the land which you see, I will give it to you and your descendants. So the land was to be physically possessed by not just his descendants, but by Abraham. He never did. There never was a time when Abram possessed the land. He was always a tent dweller in the land, and there never has been a time in history that Israel controlled all of the land. The boundaries, as we'll see, go from the uh, river of Egypt to the river Euphrates, and they've never controlled 100% of the land God promised to them. Therefore, to fulfill these promises to Abraham, two things must occur. Number one, Abraham must be resurrected and put in the land. Secondly, the land must be restored in full to Israel. If these promises have never been fulfilled, then God must fulfill them. That is one of the facets and important facets of how all of this relates to the angelic conflict because Satan is trying to destroy Israel right now so that God cannot fulfill those promises. And if God can't fulfill his promises, and Satan's going to be making his case, that not even God can control uh, creatures or his creation. Therefore, but putting the sovereignty of God at the center point of the angelic conflict. Furthermore, the, angelic con- the, uh, excuse me, the Abrahamic covenant was confirmed to Isaac, and to Jacob in the same terms. In Genesis 26, 2 through 5, it's confirmed to Isaac. And in Genesis 28, 13 through 15, it's confirmed to Jacob. Then when we come to the Mosaic Covenant, in Leviticus 26, 43 to 45, God makes the same confirmation to the nation when they leave Egypt. And in Leviticus 26, he's outlining the various cycles of discipline on Israel. And he prophesies in that time the future removal of Israel from the land and the divine discipline on them. In verse 43, God states, For the land shall be abandoned by them. This is looking down the the future when Israel is disobedient and removed from the land, uh, not simply in 586 B.C., but in 70 A.D., For the land shall be abandoned by them and shall make up for its Sabbaths while it is made desolate without them. They, meanwhile, shall be making amends for their iniquity because they rejected my ordinances and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them. Unconditional promise that even though they are out of the land, God does not reject them. Nor will I so abhor them as to destroy them breaking my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. So God promises the covenant. And when he says my covenant there, he's not talking about the Mosaic covenant. 
He's talking about the initial Abrahamic covenant. In verse 45, God goes on to say, But I will remember for them the covenant with their ancestors. See, he had just made a covenant with them on Sinai, so he's not talking about that one. He's talking about the covenant with their ancestors. Whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am their Lord. Later on in the major prophets, Isaiah restates the restoration to the Abrahamic boundaries as a future promise. In Isaiah 27, 12, and 13 we read, And it will come about in that day that the Lord will start his threshing, that that, that day is in the end, at the end of the tribulation, that the Lord will start his threshing from the flowing stream of the Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, and you will be gathered up one by one, O sons of Israel. So that points to the fact that they will be regathered on an individual basis. God will regather every single individual Jew to the land, from the river stream of Euphrates to the brook of Egypt. Verse 13, It will come about also on that day that a great trumpet will be blown, and those who are perishing in the land of Assyria and who are scattered in the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord in the holy mountain, at Jerusalem, and we will see that the term holy mountain is more than just the present Mount Zion, but that in the tribulation period, after the earth, massive earthquake that occurs at the end of the tribulation, that there is going to be this enormous mountain that is, has at its top, uh, it's, it's uh, uh, several, mile, several square miles, and that is the centerpiece of where the tribulation, I'm excusing the millennial, temple will be built, and all nations will go to that mountain for worship. So this is what that is referring to, the future mountain that is raised during the millennial kingdom in Israel. Other prophets go on to restate and reiterate that God will give tremendous productivity and prosperity to the land. In Isaiah 30 23 and 24 we read, Then he will give you rain for the seed which you will sow in the ground, and bread from the yield of the ground, and it will be rich and plenteous. On that day your livestock will graze in a roomy pasture. Also the oxen and donkeys which work the ground will eat salted fodder which has been winnowed with shovel and fork. In Isaiah 65:21, he says, And they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit They shall not plant and another eat. See, that's what's happened in the past. So this is a promise that they won't be removed from the land again. For as the lifetime of a tree, so shall be the days of my people, and my chosen ones shall wear out the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. It will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer, and while they are still speaking, I will hear. So that is a promise related to the millennial kingdom and Israel's position in the kingdom in the future. Jeremiah 31, 1 and 1 through 3 further expands the productivity and prosperity that Israel will experience at this time, like a, a prosperity it's never experienced. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. When he says, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, that is an inclusive term indicating that every family in Israel will be responsive to God on positive volition and believers. Verse 2, they saw, Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. Israel, when it went to find its rest. It's talking about their deliverance at the end of the tribulation. The Lord appeared to him from afar, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love, therefore I have drawn you with loving kindness. Verse 4, he goes on to say, Again, I will build you, and you shall be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. Again, you shall take up your tambourines and go forth to the dancers of the merrymakers. Again, you shall plant vineyards on the hills of Samaria. The planters shall plant and shall enjoy them, for there shall be... Excuse me, there shall be a day when watchmen on the hills of Ephraim, that's the northern kingdom, shall call out, Arise and let us go up to Zion, to the Lord of our God. Now, what happened in the intertestamental period? Though Ephraim was in the hill country, what we called Samaria. They wanted to go to Gerizim to worship. They did not want to go to Judea to worship. So this is emphasizing the unity of the nation during the millennial kingdom. 
Ezekiel states this as well, and you will know that I am the Lord your God when I bring you into the land of Israel, into the land which I swore to give to your forefathers. And there you will remember your ways and all your deeds with which you have defiled yourselves, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for all the evil things that you have done. That's Ezekiel 20, 42 through 44. Verse 44 reads, Then you will know that I am the Lord when I have dealt with you for my name's sake, on the basis of my character and integrity, not according to your evil ways or according to your corrupt deeds. That's grace, O house of Israel. Other passages that indicate the regathering of Israel to the land God promised on the basis of the Abrahamic covenant are found in Ezekiel 36, 28 to 38, Joel 2, 18 to 27, Joel 3, 18, and Amos 9, 13. So on the basis of the Abrahamic covenant, God is going to restore Israel to the land to its fullest extent as he promised Abraham. Those passages again are Ezekiel 36, 28 to 38, Joel 2, 18 to 27, Joel 3, 18, and Amos 9, 13. If you didn't get it that time, Jim, you can get the tape. So this is, that's the Abrahamic covenant. Second, we see that the regathering of Israel is in fulfillment of the land promise in Deuteronomy chapter 29. That was the land covenant, the second covenant that we looked at. The Abrahamic covenant lays the foundation, and then the the first development is the real estate covenant in Deuteronomy 29 and Deuteronomy 30. Look at Deuteronomy 29.1. This makes it clear that the real estate covenant is distinct from the Abrahamic covenant. These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the sons of Israel in the land of Moab. This is when they're on the verge of entering into the land. Besides the covenant which he had made with them at Horeb. Notice that. Beside the covenant that he made for them at Horeb. Horeb is another name for Sinai. So this is a second covenant. This is an unconditional land covenant. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 29 at some of the provisions that are here. Deuteronomy 29, look down to uh, verse 24. Deuteronomy 29, let's turn down to verse All the, this is a, these are the promises, covenant prophecies of the Lord. And all the nations shall say, why has the Lord done this to the land? It's talking about the discipline, taking them out of the land, all the judgments on Israel in the past. Why this great outburst of anger? Then men shall say, because they forsook the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they have not known and whom he had not allotted to them. Therefore the anger of the Lord burned against that land to bring upon it every curse which is written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from the land in anger and in fury and in great wrath and cast them into another land as it is to this day. And that's talking about, that's a prophecy of the present dispersion of Israel. So it's a promise that they're going to be taken out of the land, but also there is a promise that they will be restored to the land, starting in chapter 30, verse 1. So it shall be, when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all nations where the Lord your God has banished you, like today when they're scattered throughout every nation on the earth. And you return to the Lord your God and obey Him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today, you and your sons. That's talking about the fact that regeneration of Israel is going to take place prior to the restoration. At the end of the tribulation, uh, Israel is going to turn to God for salvation. Two-thirds of the Jews are going to be destroyed. One-third are going to be saved, physically delivered, that is, 
and those that one-third are going to trust the Lord. Then, verse 3, Then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you back. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it, and he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. See, that verse tells us that this was not the fulfillment of the return after the Babylonian captivity. That was a partial return. There were still many Jews scattered throughout all of the earth, and they never experienced the level of prosperity during the intertestamental period from roughly 444 B.C. up to the time of Christ or 70 A.D. even. They never experienced the kind of prosperity during that period they did. under Solomon, under Hezekiah, under Josiah. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Moreover, the Lord God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul in order that you may live. That's a picture of a completely regenerate Israel. That's not a picture of a of a remnant. That's one of the things that, that is... Fascinating about all of the passages related to a restored Israel is that historically Israel is always referred to as Israel and the remnant. The remnant are those that are believers within the whole nation. Once you get into these regathering, uh, these prophetic passages dealing with the regathering of Israel, Israel is viewed as a unit. It's no longer viewed as a remnant plus. It's viewed as, as a, as an entire nation that loves the Lord. Verse 7, And the Lord your God will inflict all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you, who persecuted you, and you shall again obey the Lord and observe all His commandments which I command you today. Then the Lord your God will prosper you abundantly in all the work of your hand, the offspring of your body, and the offspring of your cattle, and the produce of your ground. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good, just as He rejoiced over your fathers. So that passage emphasizes that Israel will be restored to the land and blessed then on the basis of the land covenant with Israel. This is confirmed numerous times by the prophets. Let's uh, look at another passage in Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. Many important passage, uh, verses in here related to the millennium. Some we'll look at later. Starting verse 11, we read, Then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with His hand the remnant of His people who will remain. It will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time. Well, what is this second regathering? Well, this second regathering is the regathering at the end of the tribulation. The first regathering took place in uh, approximately 400 to 500 B.C. with the regathering after the Babylonian captivity. So the second regathering is at the end of the tribulation. This is the regathering of a redeemed remnant. The remnant, he will regather the remnant of his people who will remain from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. And he will lift up a standard for the nations. And he will assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Then the jealousy of Ephraim, that goes back to the division between north and southern kingdom. Then the jealousy of Ephraim will depart and those who harass Judah will be cut off. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah and Judah will not harass Ephraim. And they will swoop down the slopes of the Philistines on the west. Together they will plunder the sons of the east. They will possess Edom and Moab. Somebody was asking me that the other day if the Transjordan was part of the promised land. And, of course, it is because of this passage is one of them. They will possess Edom and Moab, that's present Jordan. And the sons of Ammon will be subject to them. 
And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and he will wave his hand over the river and his scorching wind, and he will strike it into seven streams. What's interesting is that Egypt is uninhabitable for 45 years after the end of the tribulation, and no one can live there. And there are many prophecies related to what God is going to do to Egypt during the tribulation. So this is a time that emphasizes a second regathering, that it comes from all over the world, that it's going to be a united nation, and that their miracles will accompany this regathering. Furthermore, in Isaiah 27:12 and 13, we read, It will come about in that day that the Lord will start His threshing from the flowing stream of the Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, and you will be gathered up one by one. It will come about also in that day that a great trumpet will be blown. Those who are perishing in the land of Assyria and were scattered in the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord in the holy mountain at Jerusalem. They will all be gathered together. Isaiah 43, 5 through 7 states, Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, Give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. Notice he uses the phrases like whom I have created, bara, whom I have formed, yatser, even whom I have made, asa. These are the three key creation verbs that are all used in Genesis chapter 1. Which And, and the emphasis here is that the act by which God restores all the regenerative Israel to the land is an act similar to the creation of the earth in Genesis chapter 1. Jeremiah 16:14. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declared the Lord, when it will no longer be said, as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. That verse is focusing on the past event of the Exodus deliverance. But, verse 15, as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of the north, and from all the countries where he had banished them, for I will restore them to their own land which I gave to their fathers. Jeremiah 23, 3 and 4. Then I myself shall gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and shall bring them back to their pasture, and they will be fruitful and multiply. I shall also raise up shepherds over them, and they will tend them, and they will not be afraid any longer, nor be terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. Verse 7 in chapter 23 goes on to say, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they will no longer say, As the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt, as the Lord lives, who brought up and led back from the descendants of the household of Israel from the north land, from all the countries where I had driven them, then they will live on their own soil. Ezekiel 11:14 through 17 states, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, your brothers, your relatives, your fellow exiles, and the whole house of Israel, all of them, are those to whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Go far from the Lord, this land has been given us as a possession. Therefore say, thus saith the Lord God, though I had removed them from, though I had removed them far away among the nations, and though I had scattered them among the countries, yet I was a sanctuary for them a little while in the countries where they had gone. That's talking about the present protection of God over Israel, demonstrating they cannot be destroyed as an ethnic group or as as a nation. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I shall gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries among which you have been scattered, and I shall give you the land of Israel. Verse 18, when they come there, they will remove all its detestable things and all its abominations from it. Ezekiel 36, 24, For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Amos 9, 14, and 15, Also I will restore the captivity of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. I will also plant them on their land, and they will not again be rooted out from their land, which I have given them, says the Lord your God. Now the point of all this is to show that over and over again, and I'm just scratching the surface of the number of verses in the prophets, that talk about God regathering the nation to the land, and that once they return to the land, they will all be devoted to Him, they will all worship Him, there will be a, it will be a time of unprecedented prosperity and fruitfulness in the land. And that has never happened historically. So the other positions, such as amillennialism and postmillennialism, reject all that, and God will never fulfill those promises according to those 
those systems of interpretation. So God is going to reestablish them in the land. He's going to reestablish the throne of David. This was announced in Isaiah 9.6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Father of Eternity. That's a corrected translation. He's not called the Father. He's called the Father of Eternity, emphasizing that he is full deity and eternal. He is called Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David or over his kingdom. So there Isaiah clearly announces that the child will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom. And that would be understood by a Jew to be a kingdom that was in the land, a kingdom that was bounded by the boundaries promised in the land covenant. That he would establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, uninterrupted for all eternity. See, there are two stages to the future kingdom of God. Stage one, as we'll see, is the millennial kingdom, 1,000 years, and stage two is eternity. And Jesus will reign over Israel on the throne of David, not just for the 1,000 years, but on through eternity. Isaiah 16.5 states, A throne will be established in loving kindness, and a judge will sit on it in faithfulness in the tent of David. Moreover, he will seek justice and prompt in righteousness. This is not a spiritualized throne in heaven today. That's not what you would get from an understanding of these Old Testament promises. These are promises that state that there will be a physical descendant of David who will sit on the throne forever. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I shall raise up for David a righteous branch. And he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. The northern and southern kingdoms will be united is the inference. And this is his name by which he will be called Yahweh Tzedekinu, the Lord our righteousness. Jeremiah 33:14 and 15. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill... Our, I missed one. Jeremiah 33, go back one. Jeremiah 23, 5. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. That hasn't happened yet. In those days, Judah will be saved. And Jerusalem shall dwell in safety, and this is the name by which he shall be called, The Lord is our righteousness. Almost identical to the, uh, what he said earlier in Jeremiah 23. It's reiterated again and again. Then it goes on in Jeremiah 33:18. Um, I'm getting ahead of myself. In Jeremiah 16, 33:16, In those days Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem shall dwell in safety. This is the name by which he shall be called, the Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man before me to offer burnt offerings, to burn great offerings, and to prepare sacrifices. So it goes on and on in reiterating that God is going to literally and physically fulfill his promises to David. And then we come to the last section, which is the fulfillment of the New Covenant passages, the regeneration of Israel, which must take place before all of these other fulfillments. And we will stop here and come back and look at the regeneration of Israel, the fulfillment of the New Covenant next time, and then move on into the fulfillment of the, I mean, the characteristics of the Millennial Kingdom with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this time to look at how you are going to ultimately fulfill all of your promises to Israel. Just as you uh, fulfilled some literally in the past, you will fulfill all of them eventually in the future. This gives us great confidence knowing that in the culmination of human history that justice and righteousness will reign on the earth and all injustices and all unrighteousnesses will be dealt with. Father, we pray that as we study these things and as we are reminded of them in the week to come that you would help us to, that you would use them as a basis for uh, confirming our understanding of doctrine and for giving us confidence in that if you control the great ebb and flow of history, you are in control even over the problems and the difficulties that we face in life, 
that we may be willing to uh, bring to you, come to you in faith and trust to, exerc- to utilize all of the promises that you have given us as believers in this church age to trust you, to rest in your grace provision to face all the problems we deal with in this life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.